You're listening to Calvin's Institutes. Lesson 8. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. If you are benefiting from these worldwide classroom lectures, please consider supporting this free ministry. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage, worldwide-classroom.com. Thank you very much for your support. We'll look uh, this morning now at uh, Lesson 8, Gospel and Law. Begin with a prayer from John Calvin, as we uh, always do. Let's pray. Almighty God, Thou hast willed to show Thyself so intimately to us, and also daily chooses to confirm us in Thy truth. Grant we may turn aside neither to the right nor to the left, but depend wholly on thy word, and so cleave to thee, that no errors of the world may lead us astray. May we stand firm in that faith which we have learned from thy law, from the prophets, and the gospel, wherein thou hast more clearly shown thyself through Christ, that we may finally enjoy thy full and perfect glory, being transfigured into it, at last attaining that inheritance acquired for us by the blood of thine only begotten Son. Amen. We've looked at uh, the first uh, five chapters of Book 2 now, which is the need for the Redeemer, or sin and its results. And uh, we come... uh, with chapter 6 of book 2, throughout the rest of book 2, to uh, salvation through Christ. Remember, the title of book 2 is Knowledge of God the Redeemer in Christ. But Calvin has to, uh, first of all, establish the need for the Redeemer in the first five chapters before he gets to salvation through Christ, the knowledge of God the Redeemer in Christ. He gives us a review of Book 1 and of Book 2, Chapters 1 through 5. As he begins Chapter 6, The Fact of the Fall, 261, The whole human race perished in the person of Adam. We could take that sentence as a kind of capsule review of the first five chapters of Book 2. The whole human race perished in the person of Adam. And uh, we elaborated on that uh, in some detail last time. And then he looks back to all of book one when he speaks of the impossibility of a natural theology in 261. He says, Our eyes, wherever they turn, encounter God's curse. If man had not fallen, our eyes would have been able to observe God's presence in creation and providence, as well as hear God's voice uh, within us in the sense of divinity in the seat of religion. But uh, now, because of the fall, which we have looked at in the first five chapters of Book 2, our eyes, wherever they turn, encounter God's curse. And so, the stage is set for the Redeemer. The need for the Redeemer, as Calvin sets it forth in the beginning of chapter 6. Therefore, since we have fallen from life 
into death. It's another review of the first five chapters of Book 2. The whole knowledge of God the Creator that we have discussed in Book 1 would be useless unless faith also followed, setting forth for us God our Father in Christ. If uh, we do not uh, come to know uh, Christ, uh, any, any knowledge then uh, that we might presume that we have of God the Father is futile and is useless. Another way to say it is that without, um, without book two, there's really no knowledge in book one. That knowledge of God the Creator, which uh, we've talked about in book one, is not uh, available uh, to us unless we have the knowledge of God the Creator through Christ. So without uh, book two, uh, book uh, one is ineffective. We can't know God the Creator unless we know him in Christ. So with those uh, comments, we're ready uh, to look at um, Calvin's uh, treatment of the Redeemer. It's one of his favorite uh, expressions for Christ. It's the one that he will use most often in the material we read for today. Fallen man ought to seek redemption in Christ. You can see how everything that he has done so far has pressed us to that point. Fallen man ought to seek redemption in Christ. But uh, remember now the, the title of uh, book two, Salvation Through Christ, but the title is The Knowledge of God the Redeemer in Christ, first disclosed to the fathers under the law and then to us in the gospel. So as soon as uh, Calvin introduces the idea of Christ the Redeemer, uh, he turns to survey, you might say, all of the Bible. He doesn't uh, start with the New Testament. Uh, he starts um, with the Old Testament because soteriology in Calvin is introduced by Christ, of course. Not introduced by law, but by Christ. Christ, when he says, this is eternal life to know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent speaks not of his own age, but as Calvin says, he comprehends all ages. So the, the message of the Bible is Christ who comprehends all ages. Christ was present before Bethlehem, of course, just as the Holy Spirit is present before Pentecost. And the point that Calvin is going to make so um, fervently and eloquently, I think, in this section is that uh, Christ comprehends all ages. You might uh, look at it like this. For Calvin, the order is not uh, law and gospel or Old Testament, New Testament, but it is gospel and law. Or perhaps a better way to say it, it's gospel, law, gospel. He completely surrounds the law by the gospel because there's a chapter 261 on Christ, then the Old Testament, and then he comes back to Christ. So it's Christ, Old Testament law, 
by law he means the Old Testament scriptures, not just the Ten Commandments, but uh, the whole of the Old Testament, and the Gospel. Or maybe even a better way to uh, diagram uh, what Calvin is doing here is to say it is entirely Gospel, first disclosed to the fathers in the law and then to us in the gospel, but the disclosure that we receive in the gospel is far fuller and more complete, uh, as we'll see, than the expression of the gospel that was disclosed to the fathers in the law. But what was disclosed to them in the law is the same gospel that is disclosed to us now more completely uh, after the earthly coming of Jesus Christ. So law, in this sense, is uh, part of the gospel. It's included in the gospel and is part of the gospel. So Calvin begins with gospel and surrounds law with gospel. 2.6 is Christ. 2.7 and 8 is law. 2.9 is Christ. For Calvin, there is but one word of God. There's not two, there's one. And the law is, is part of that one word of God. The law is part of the ongoing revelation of God, and it's set in the context of the promise of the gospel. Now, the way Calvin puts it, this is 271, is that the law was not given to lead the chosen people away from Christ but rather to hold their minds in readiness until his coming. So the law comes after Abraham with Moses, but it's not given in order to bring something else on to the table, you might say, but uh, to focus the minds and hearts on Christ of the chosen people. Calvin's fundamental premise is that the substance of the law is gratuitous mercy. Okay, let's come now to uh, the law itself, to 2, 7, and 8. We've seen how Calvin surrounds the law with the gospel in the arrangement of the institutes. Let's see exactly what he says about uh, the law. The form of the law is accommodation. I've talked uh, already about how Calvin loves this word and uses it so often. God accommodates himself uh, to the level of our understanding. And uh, certainly Calvin sees in the form of the law or the Old Testament scriptures God's accommodation of himself and his message to the elementary uh, mentality of the Jews. He doesn't mean by that that these ancient people were not smart, but he means that they they stand at the very very beginning of the unfolding of God's revelation. And so God speaks to them in a form uh, that is uh, particularly right for them, accommodated uh, to their understanding. Calvin describes them in 272 as like children. 
remember an experience uh, I had a good many years ago that, that illustrates this, I think. When Ann and I were uh, first married, uh, we went to uh, the island of Grand Cayman just after our honeymoon in North Carolina. We went down to uh, Grand Cayman, and I was pastor of the Boatsman Bay Presbyterian Church for that summer. It's a church that uh, David Jones later served for a couple of years. And uh, that was before Cayman was famous as a tourist spot and as a place for banks. In those days, it was full of mosquitoes and Presbyterians. The island had been settled by Scots who um, planted Presbyterian churches, different parts of Grand Cayman. And uh, when we first uh, got there, we decided that I would teach the adults upstairs in our little church out by a lighthouse on the northern coast of uh, the island. And uh, Anne would teach the children downstairs. And just before uh, we left the United States, someone had given Anne a box full of flannel graph. don't know if you all have ever seen that kind of thing. It's kind of old-fashioned now, but uh, used to be used in Sunday school quite often. Pictures uh, of different um, people or whatever, to illustrate uh, Bible stories. And it was flannel on the back, and you could put it up against a flannel graph board, and it would stick there. So as you taught the class, you used these pictures. So we started out. I was teaching upstairs and was teaching downstairs. And uh, when my class found out that there were pictures downstairs, the next Sunday they all went downstairs. So I had nobody left. And I moved downstairs, and I was Anne's assistant then for the rest of the summer, <laughs> holding up the pictures and putting up the pictures as she taught uh, the class. Well, I was thinking about that. It's, it's what Calvin is saying here. Um, it's the same, the same gospel being taught upstairs and downstairs. I was doing it um, through words primarily, very much like the New Testament. But Anne was doing it through images and pictures downstairs. So, upstairs and downstairs, the same gospel, Old Testament, New Testament, the same gospel, but accommodated in the Old Testament period to the childlike mentality of the Jews. And certainly accommodated in the New Testament period, too, because all of the gospel is accommodated, all of God's revelation is accommodated to the level of our understanding. But uh, for Calvin, uh, as you see it, it in the Old Testament, there is... Um, might say more accommodation because it's the beginning of the history of salvation. The form of the law, then accommodation, uh, the unity of the law. Calvin is very concerned to stress that there is but one everlasting and unchangeable rule. Calvin typically distinguishes three types of law, moral, and uh, ceremonial and judicial. So we'll talk about those three in a, in a moment. Uh, but um, there's just one uh, law. It's not so much different laws as different aspects of the same law. And it's very interesting that when Calvin comes to do his uh, commentaries on the, on the Pentateuch, he has a commentary on Genesis, but um, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy especially, 
um, but also numbers are arranged in the form of a harmony. And rather than just going verse by verse through those four books, he tries to set all of this out under the rubric of the law as expressed in the Ten Commandments. So you have material from the judicial law, from the ceremonial law, as well as the moral law, uh, that would illustrate different um, different aspects of the law and different uh, laws of the Ten Commandments. He says the ceremonial and judicial also pertain to morals, but we'll see there's a difference between these laws. But uh, Calvin thinks that the unity of the law, the, the oneness of the law, would allow him to arrange his commentary in this way. Not sure it's altogether successful. You can have a look at what Calvin does there and uh, see if you think he's able to accomplish his goal or not, but at least his, his purpose is clear, and that is to say there is but one everlasting and unchangeable rule given uh, by God. Well, let's uh, come then to the types of law, and we'll discuss the three different types in Calvin and uh, see how he uh, deals with this ceremonial, civil, and moral. Getting uh, with the ceremonial law, that's the law concerning the sacrifices and the various uh, practices instituted by God for worship in the tabernacle and in the temple. Calvin says this part of the law most effectively carries the gospel. He really wanted to see the gospel most clearly. All the law is gospel, but the most effective place in the Old Testament where you see uh, the gospel is in the ceremonies, the sacrifices. Although worthless and empty until Christ is revealed, these sacrifices, these rituals have no inherent value in themselves. They're worthless and empty until Christ is revealed. But Calvin doesn't mean that they have to wait until the chronological appearance of Christ at Bethlehem. It's not that the sacrifices and the practices of the Old Testament saints were worthless and empty until Christ was born at Bethlehem, but they're worthless and empty until Christ is revealed. But Christ is revealed in the Old Testament times uh, to the Jews as well as later to us in the Gospel. So he's not talking about chronological advent of Christ, but rather these laws, these practices abstracted from Christ without the revelation of Christ as the substance of these laws. Uh, without that, uh, they are empty and worthless. Calvin says in 2.7.1, For what is more vain or absurd than for men to offer a loathsome stench from the fat of 
cattle in order to reconcile themselves to God. Just take the, the pure event, just the act itself. It's worthless. It's, it's senseless. But uh, when Christ is revealed as the content of that practice, then uh, there is true gospel and true life. What happens uh, to this law in the New Testament period? I think we could diagram it uh, this this way. Let's see if I can get that smaller. It's as small as it will go. Uh, Old Testament period, New Testament ceremonial law is fulfilled in Christ. Now, does that mean it's it's abrogated? Uh, yes. It's abrogated. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't hold for us now in the period of the gospel, but it's abrogated, not in regard uh, to the meaning of the ceremonial law, but in regard to the use of the ceremonial law. That's why I have uh, ceremonial law fulfilled in Christ, but the meaning continues. Not the use, but the meaning. By that, uh, Calvin means um, we, don't, we don't make sacrifices today. The use is abrogated. It would be wrong uh, for us to make sacrifices because Christ has fulfilled uh, the ceremonial law. It's all about him, and it all pointed to his sacrifice on the cross, and uh, there is no need for further sacrifice. But the meaning of that ceremonial law lives on. Another way to say it, I suppose, is we don't make uh, sacrifices, but we preach on the book of Leviticus. You can still read Leviticus. You can still preach on Leviticus. You can still teach Leviticus, uh, not as uh, something of archaic interest, but as the living word of God. Because as you understand those sacrifices and the different parts of the ceremonial law, you come to understand that, it reveals, even to us today, more who Jesus is and what he has done in his sacrifice uh, for our sins. Calvin says, Christ, by coming, terminated the ceremonial law, but in doing so, he sealed their force and effect. So we don't throw those books out of the Bible. Uh, we still have them uh, in our Bibles and still read them and study them uh, with profit and with blessing. Calvin says the ceremonial law encouraged piety, that is, holiness. And you certainly see that as you uh, read those books of the Old Testament. But the ceremonial law was not piety. It was the means that God used to encourage righteousness, holiness, piety in his Old Testament people. But it was not the same as piety because the laws cease, but piety continues. Love for God, righteousness, and holiness uh, continues. So that's the ceremonial law. Come next to the civil law. 
the civil law or the judicial law is the law, laws, uh, that uh, God gave to Moses uh, for the regulation of the life of the nation of Israel. Every people has to have a law or laws to uh, organize uh, their life. And uh, this was the law that God gave for Israel. And we can say that law was abrogated too. Because with the end of the nation of Israel, the Old Testament people, uh, the law was no longer uh, required. In God's uh, purpose and plan, uh, the church replaced the nation. There's not anything today like uh, the Old Testament nation of Israel. There's a modern nation of Israel, but uh, that's a different uh, phenomenon. Uh, The church has replaced the Old Testament nation of Israel, so those laws are no longer required. They're abrogated, but we don't just forget those either. We can study these laws of the Old Testament And we can look for the principles that uh, lay behind these laws. And those principles are still valid for modern states. In other words, if you look at the Old Testament judicial law, you find a lot of principles, but you could sum them up under two headings, love and justice or equity. Uh, These laws reflect uh, those two principles, and Calvin says that modern states have the right to make laws as they choose to govern their own people. They should not take the Old Testament laws given for the nation of Israel and apply those laws uh, without discrimination to a modern state. should not do that. Calvin was not a theonomist, in other words. But what they should do is to apply the principles of those Old Testament laws, love, equity, and justice to modern states. We'll come uh, to this in, in much more detail in Book 4, Chapter 20. That's the last chapter of the Institutes when Calvin is treating civil government. But I think it's uh, important here to note uh, what Calvin says at that point. For 2014, Calvin explicitly rejected what he called the false and foolish notion that a modern state could be run under the political system of Moses rather than the common law of nations. And let me just read one other quotation on this. This is from his commentary on Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. The gospel is not brought in to change the common politics of the world and to make laws that belong to the temporal state. It is true that kings, princes, and magistrates ought always to take counsel at God's mouth 
and to conform themselves to his word. But yet for all that, our Lord has given them liberty to make such laws as they shall perceive to be fitting and suitable for the rule committed to them. They must call upon God to give them the spirit of wisdom and discretion, and because they are insufficient for this in and of themselves, they must take counsel from God's word. So I think Calvin could not be clearer uh, on this. And uh, that is principles apply, but uh, the actual laws don't. Calvin says that law is abrogated, which was never enacted for us. That was not a law that was given for us. Uh, Luther held the same thing. He said it a little more colorfully. He usually does. When someone asked him, is the civil law for us? Luther said, are you a Jew? And uh, are you a Jew that lived uh, back in the Old Testament times in the nation of Israel? If you are, then it fits. If you're not, it doesn't. We could... Uh, Spend more time on this. Perhaps I'll say a little more about it. Laws for modern states, contemporary states such as uh, Geneva, uh, were not based, were not meant to be based, and Calvin did not encourage those laws to be based on Old Testament legislation. But it's, it's remarkable how many treatments of Calvin and Geneva at least from a popular standpoint and from a, a more of a secular standpoint. We'll talk about Geneva being a theocracy and Calvin being a, a dictator, um, putting into practice uh, the Old Testament uh, legislation. And uh, that is far uh, from true. In fact, it's just the opposite. Calvin said that the civil law of Moses encouraged love and justice, and this should be something that modern states would express in their own laws, but um, was not necessary to bring in the specific legislation of the Old Testament. Uh, Calvin uh, was not a, a dictator. Uh, not even a ruler of Geneva. He was the the chief minister in the church of Geneva, but uh, he was not even a citizen of Geneva until the 1550s, and uh, he lived in a city uh, where uh, laws were made by some very strong groups of men, little council, and uh, the council of 60, and the council of 200, Calvin had influence, but he could not um, dictate. He was a member of the 1541 Commission uh, to review the civil and political laws of the city, but that he was invited to, to sit on that commission. Uh, Calvin, as you remember, was trained in law. He was a lawyer, having studied at two of the best law schools in France. And so when he came to Geneva as minister, uh, he had a great deal of expertise in legal matters as well. And uh, 
the councils recognized Calvin's ability um, in this area and listened to him and appreciated um, uh, his work. In fact, um, as a kind of um, remuneration uh, for his work on this commission, uh, he was given a, a barrel of fine old wine, which must have been worth something as the uh, city fathers wanted to um, reward Calvin for his assistance. Apparently, Calvin favored using as the pattern for law the contemporary French models rather than Roman law and canon law or church law. And I think his greatest contribution, although he did make some specific uh, suggestions, but his greatest contribution was to uh, be sure that the laws of the state of Geneva did set forth the principles of justice and equity. Uh, for instance, uh, criminal cases should be expedited as quickly as possible so that a person is not, uh, is not detained um, for a long period of time languishing in prison. That would, that would uh, violate the, the law of love. And uh, there are many other examples of uh, how Calvin urges that laws be humane and that laws be just. Uh, you, could, um, you could say that comes from natural law, but it also comes from the civil uh, law of the Old Testament. Okay, that leaves us with uh, one other type of law to talk about, and this is the one that we need to spend most of our time on, and that is uh, the moral law. Calvin calls it the true and eternal rule of, of righteousness. And this is prescribed for people of all nations in all times. That's a quotation from book four, but uh, deals uh, with this topic here. There's no chronological limitation. There's no national limitation as there is in ceremonial and civil laws. So with the moral law, it's not abrogated. And the full content uh, of the moral law uh, continues. Can you see that? Push it up here. Doesn't end. It continues prescribed for men of all nations and all times. There are various ways that you could, could think of the moral law. You could think of it as natural law. That is what uh, God implants in us, the seed of religion, conscience, which would have borne good fruit if we had not sinned. It takes then the form of the written law of the Old Testament, which restates and fills out and elaborates what is already there in natural law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, and summarized further by Christ in his 
word that it is to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And explain in the Sermon on the Mount, which is not a new law, but the old law properly interpreted, freed from the Pharisaic misinterpretations of the law. As Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is a gives a faithful interpretation of the law. So you can see it both in the Old Testament and in the teachings of Jesus and in the rest of the New Testament. And you can also find vestiges of it in natural revelation in conscience. This law, true and eternal rule of righteousness, is abrogated not in content or observance, but only in the sense that it may no longer bind the conscience of believers with a curse. That's the only difference. And we'll have to uh, wait until we come uh, to the chapter on Christian freedom, which is in book 3, chapter 19, to see what Calvin means by that. The law is still there. The law is for us. It doesn't bind our our conscience, however, uh, with a curse. Having uh, come uh, to moral law, Calvin then discusses the uses of the moral law. We're focusing here entirely on the moral law, and uh, this is the famous discussion of the three uses of the law. Ready for that, or any questions about where we are so far? I think this is a pretty straightforward and and clear approach that Calvin is taking. So he leads us step by step. We've come now to moral law and the first of the three uses. The first use is condemnation. Now, that was not uh, the reason the law was given uh, in the first place uh, in the form that it would have taken, say, in the Garden of Eden. And we know there was law there, don't eat of this tree. The the law uh, is an expression of God's love and God's kindness. Someone left this issue of Covenant magazine up here, and it has uh, Dr. Williams' sermon that he gave last semester when we had the series on the Ten Commandments. Um, Dr. Williams was first, where the commandments begin, and it really sets forth very nicely what uh, Calvin is talking about. In fact, Dr. Williams uh, concludes his sermon with a quotation from Calvin that uh, The law is love, and it isn't destructive of personal relationships. It's not something that that comes between us and God. It uh, doesn't come in there uh, to uh, bring in something uh, impersonal or mechanical. 
But even though the law is given as an expression of God's paternal kindness, that is, the nature of the law is not changed. The law sets forth God's love and his kindness to us. Uh, The function, this first function of the law changes because of sin. And now it condemns. It points out uh, our sin as we look at uh, the moral law. It points out our sin and leaves us inexcusable. Uh, Nobody can say that uh, he or she is measured up. We can't look at the law and excuse ourselves. You know, Paul makes an effort to do that, looking at the commandments and checking them all, saying, well, I haven't killed, I haven't, I haven't uh, committed adultery. Uh, he doesn't really understand the full meaning of the law, as we'll see later. But uh, even the outward form of the Ten Commandments, he, he finally realizes that um, he's inexcusable because he comes to the Tenth Commandment. And that deals with the inner attitude of coveting. Paul cannot justify himself at that point. So uh, we stand uh, condemned as sinners um, before the law. The text here is, or you can use uh, several. Calvin uses both Romans 3.20 and Romans uh, 5.20. Romans 3.20 says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And his illustration is the mirror. Uh, You look in in the mirror and um, you see what you look like. You kind of know what you look like before you look in the mirror. But when you look in the mirror, you really see what you look like. So Paul looking at the Ten Commandments and saying, I failed. I haven't kept the Tenth Commandment. I'm a sinner. I was looking uh, in the mirror of God's law. So the first use is to expose the exceeding sinfulness of sin, not just to make us um, miserable that we're sinners, but that we might be moved to seek and await help from another quarter. It condemns us in order to uh, move us uh, to seek um, salvation uh, through Christ. second use of the law is restraint. Sometimes this is called the social use of the law or the political use of the law. And it means this, by uh, by fear of of punishment, uh, people are restrained in their sin. And so uh, human life uh, is possible in community on this earth. The laws of of nations uh, reflect uh, at least the second table of of the Ten Commandments. So God's law, thou shalt not uh, kill, is usually expressed in the laws of nations in one way or another. And the person 
uh, who is uh, tempted to kill is probably restrained by that law. Not everybody is, but a lot of people are. Because people know that if they kill, they're going to suffer the consequences. So the law is there uh, to restrain. Uh, the text that uh, Calvin uses is First Timothy uh, 1, 9, and 10. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the unjust. So as the law stands there, expressed today through the laws of states, but based on the law of God, uh, there is a restraining influence that um, makes possible human life and community. Uh, without any law, uh, it would not be possible for people to live together. Laws restrain human uh, sinfulness. The illustration is the halter that uh, could be placed on an animal to hold the animal back to keep it from running away to restrain it. This action, too, this use of the law, too, is an expression of God's loving kindness uh, because Calvin sees it not only as restraining uh, sinners to keep them from uh, creating uh, havoc so that community is no longer possible, but uh, also as protecting the unregenerate until the time of their regeneration. Better way to say it is protecting the the elect until the time of their regeneration, so that people don't destroy themselves before salvation. They are restrained by uh, the law. The law here is a kind of holding action; serves as a kind of holding action, uh, whereby God preserves from utter ruin uh, those whom He has decided to bring to faith. So it restrains society in general so that communal life is possible and it protects the elect so that they don't destroy themselves before uh, the time when they come uh, to faith. Two uses. Then the third use, and Calvin calls it the principal use. Uh, The third use is guidance for believers in their Christian lives in two ways, both teaching and exhortation. Teaching, it leads us to a greater understanding of God's, God's will. 2.7.12, believers never move beyond needing the law. They must learn more thoroughly each day the nature of the Lord's will to which they aspire and be confirmed in their understanding of it. It is as if some servant already prepared with all earnestness of heart to commend himself to his master must search out and observe his master's ways more carefully in order to conform and accommodate himself to them. You see what Calvin is saying there. I think that's very important. The law is not there for the Christian uh, in order to um, require something of us, 
but it's there for the Christian in order to explain to us how to do what we want to do as Christians. In other words, it, it tells us how to love God. The servant is, is eager to obey, but what do we do? Love is not just an emotion. Love is expression in word, thought, and deed. And uh, the law comes then not to get between us and God, but to expose to us how God wants to be served, loved, and obeyed. So in that sense, we see the law as something very wonderful. Otherwise, uh, we are at loose ends, fearful, because we don't know what to do to express our love for God. But the law comes to enable us to observe our master's ways more carefully so that we can conform and accommodate ourselves to them. Third use of the law, moral law, is guidance. It teaches and it also exhorts. It not only tells us when we say, how can I love God? what to do, but at times when perhaps we don't really much feel like loving God, it exhorts us to love God. So it's both teaching and exhortation. Uh, the text, Psalm 119.105, Thy word is a lamp to my feet. It shows me where to go. The law shows me where to go. That's the, one of the figures that Calvin uses, lamp. But he also uses another figure, whip. Uh, that seems uh, one that uh, we don't like as much. We like the idea of the lamp. But uh, the whip, he says, it's like a whip to an idle and balky ass. Uh, that's us. <laughs> uh, not very flattering. Uh, but he gets his point across. The, the Ten Commandments, the law for the Christian, shows us how to love God and encourages us and exhorts us to love God. But he doesn't really end quite that negatively because he, he wants to balance that somewhat so that we don't see the law as something harsh and difficult. He says the law is not a rigorous enforcement officer who is not satisfied until the requirements are met. Now, the law is not just standing there saying, no, you didn't do that quite right, or you took a step too far that way, or something else. Now, the law is not like that. It does exhort, and it can be viewed as a whip, but um, it's not like a rigorous enforcement uh, officer uh, who's never satisfied. This is uh, Calvin's third use of the law. When you hear the expression third use of the law, this is what we're talking about. And uh, Calvin is rather uh, famous uh, for this. Uh, some people have seen 
a fundamental difference here between Calvin and Luther. Now, Luther does not uh, talk about the third use of the law. Uh, he really talks about the first use of the law. Law and gospel for Luther. Law condemns. Uh, gospel uh, saves. So, for Luther, the two are in competition. The two are uh, opposites. Luther uh, came out of the monastery uh, where, uh, to him, law meant salvation by works. And uh, he really wants to uh, keep that uh, before us so that the law is condemnation. Law and love in competition, but for Calvin, love and law say the same thing in essence. For Calvin, the law is, is positive. After the fall, there is the condemning uh, work of the law, but that for Calvin is what you could call the accidental function, though now inseparable function. The principal use of the law is guidance and exhortation. Calvin came from study of law, and he valued it, but uh, his understanding of the third use of the law is not based on his appreciation for law as such, but on his understanding of the role of the law in the life of the Christian. I think it's true to say there's a difference between Luther and Calvin here, but uh, the difference um, is sometimes exaggerated. Because you can find Calvin-like statements in Luther, places where Luther speaks about loving the law. Because the Bible does. So, he's forced to do so at points like that. And you can find places in Calvin where uh, he sounds much more like Luther. Uh, Luther's basic thrust is um, out of hearts full of gratitude for what uh, God has done for us, uh, we spontaneously um, love and serve him. And Calvin certainly uh, doesn't uh, deny that. Three, book three, 241, is a place where he actually says that. But how can the mind be aroused to taste the divine goodness without at the same time being wholly kindled to love God in return? We taste the divine goodness, and that fires us up uh, to love God. Sermon on Deuteronomy 5.21, Calvin said, By the law, God requires of us what is due to him. But that is not so in the gospel. For there God bears with us. He not only forgives us our faults, but he writes his will in our hearts. So you can have these Luther-like quotations from Calvin and as I said you can find places in Luther uh, where he speaks of the necessity for uh, the law. His small catechism has a large section on the Ten Commandments and Luther is certainly concerned about obedience and love but uh, Luther never really organizes his thought the way Calvin does so he doesn't have a third use of the law although Philip Melanchthon did, and the Augsburg Confession does.
So I think perhaps the difference here is a bit uh, exaggerated. Although probably it is true in the two traditions that we have reflected different emphases. It's an article I saw referred to the other day. I haven't uh, had a chance to read it yet, but the title was something like this. Uh, Why do the Lutherans shout justification and whisper sanctification? As the two traditions developed, there are other differences between Lutheranism and Calvinism, but um, there is some difference of emphasis here. Uh, Calvinists feared that the Lutherans would become antinomians and not um, not really respect and value the law. And the Lutherans feared that the Calvinists would become legalist and make the law into something that it should not be. And I suppose we should say that, that both were right. Uh, Lutherans did become antinomians and Calvinists did become legalist various times in the Calvinist tradition. It's not necessary for a Calvinist to be a legalist, thank goodness, but uh, the temptation may be in that direction, just as it's not necessary for a Lutheran to be an antinomian, but that's what a Lutheran has to guard against as a Calvinist has to guard against legalism. Every Presbyterian church should have at least two or three Lutherans in it, and every Lutheran church should have two or three Presbyterians in it, uh, just to keep reminding each other of the fact that legalism and antinomianism are misuses of the law. All right. Um, Thoughts or questions about that? Yes, sir. Question about um, Calvin's thoughts about the uh, third of the law. Uh-huh. Um, said 12. Yeah. He talks about um, the, the believer that he finds uh, in the law, that the law is a gracious law. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just kind of wondering what he, what he means by that. gracious there. He says he lays hold not only the precepts, but the accompanying promises of grace, which alone sweetens what is bitter. Um, those promises of grace, is it the grace, um, is the law gracious in the sense that it no longer holds the curse of the believer, or is it gracious um, in, in the sense that, uh, that even the very fact that God would instruct us in the way that we should go is, is gracious, um, or, that, or that God would um, somehow give us not only well, not sure I see the necessity to choose between the two definitions that uh, you're feeling. Yeah. Does he have a mind when he sees the graciousness of the law? I mean, how does the. Um, the law function in that third use as far as our motivation. How does it motivate us to, uh, to obey? Are we motivated by grace? Are we motivated by just the beauty of what it means to obey? Um, okay, let me try to re- reflect on that. Here's a quotation from his uh, commentary on Deuteronomy 7 9. The promise stands first, 
because God chooses rather to invite his people by kindness than to compel them to obedience from terror. And by this he means that the law itself is the promise. And the promise stands first in the sense that even before the first of the Ten Commandments, there is the promise. Um, I am Jehovah your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So that's grace, that's promise, that's gospel. And then the commandments instruct us as to how we should live in the presence of this loving God. God's uh, deliverance of the people from Egypt and his covenant relationship to them as the force of a preference of a preface to the commandments very much like <coughs> Dr. Williams set forth in his sermon first word of the law is not thou shalt but I am that's where you begin uh, with the study of the law I am Jehovah and all that that all that that means so the law is gracious, and the, the motivation then is um, because of what God has done for us, uh, we respond, as Luther always said, with gratitude, and often Calvin says the same thing. But then Calvin adds, but we respond in terms of the law because it's gracious of God to uh, give us instruction as to how to respond. So it's not just love me, but love me according to these ten ways or um, other expressions of the law that would occur um, in the rest of, of the Old Testament. Not sure I've gotten the point yet, but uh, that's, that's my, my thoughts on that. <clears throat> uh, ten minutes now to talk about the explanation of the moral law. Uh, Calvin's uh, treatment of the Ten Commandments, and uh, as you know, there's there's significant uh, material here, but uh, let me just make uh, five points of Calvin's treatment of the Ten Commandments. He lays down these general principles, and I think his his basic concern. And he says this is a sober interpretation. This is not something uh, allegorical or uh, wild. A sober interpretation of the law goes beyond the words. If you're going to understand the, the law, the Ten Commandments, you must go beyond the words. First, the law is inward. It's concerned not so much with outward appearances as with purity of heart, although the commandments sound very external. Thou shalt not kill, but it's really talking about purity of heart. It really is saying not only should you not kill, but you should not hate, despise, or anything else that uh, would, in the heart, uh, break the, the spirit uh, of that commandment, and of course, what Calvin is doing here is reflecting on the Lord's treatment of the commands in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that Christ is the law's best interpreter. 
Christ doesn't add to the law when he says, you've heard it said of old time, but I say unto you. It's not, Moses said this, but I say this. But you've heard it said of old time, that is, the Pharisees interpret the law this way, but I say unto you, what the law really means is this. So, Christ uh, rescues the law from the misinterpretation of the Pharisees and restores it uh, to uh, integrity. So, our response then is, as Calvin says in his commentary on Psalm 40, uh, is not um, pseudo-law-keeping, which involves feet, hands, and eyes. In other words, just uh, mechanical um, strictness to the external words of the law. But our response uh, is the heart, comes from the heart. Second uh, principle, the purpose of the law determines its meaning. You look at each commandment and determine the purpose of that commandment. For example, the the fifth uh, commandment expresses itself uh, in the words that thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. But Calvin says the purpose of that uh, is that honor is to be paid to those to whom God has assigned it. So, that commandment has a specific application, but it also has a broader application in Calvin's understanding of, of the law. Thirdly, the opposite is included in the command or proposition. Actually, should be prohibition. Change that word to prohibition. The opposite is included in the command or prohibition. You shall not kill. That's a prohibition. What does that mean? Well, it means not only you shall not kill, but it means we must give our neighbor's life all the help we can. Just by uh, refraining from killing, it doesn't keep that command unless uh, you're helping your neighbor. You would not maybe immediately think that thou shalt not kill means I should promote life, I should sustain life, I should assist others in their lives. Or the opposite of stealing, thou shalt not steal, is not just, well, the command, the prohibition is not just don't steal, but it's give. Give to those in need. Four, uh, there are two tables, two themes of the law, two tables, uh, as you well know, love for God and love for people, first table and second table. Uh, those two are, are connected. Calvin says it's vain to cry up righteousness without religion, 2811, it's vain to cry up righteousness without religion, uh, that is it's, it's vain uh, to emphasize uh, the moral duties of the second table without the God-directed duties of the first table. We can't just have a social gospel 
without a love for God. And apart from the fear of God, that's the first table, men do not preserve equity and love among themselves. Without the first table, uh, the second table is going to fail. And then, uh, finally, the law is complete, 285. Uh, we must not add, Calvin says, good works upon good works. Uh, this, this shows that Calvin is not a legalist. We don't add good works upon good works. We don't have a, an 11th commandment. There are only 10. And we don't make up laws. As the Roman Catholic Church has done, Calvin's time, and as different uh, forms of fundamentalism uh, have done in our time. We don't add laws to laws. The law is complete. We must not add good works upon good works. Just uh, one uh, closing uh, comment, kind of a footnote to this. Uh, Calvin uh, is, is concerned uh, with the traditional way of, of dividing uh, the ten words. We know there are ten commandments, but there are different ways uh, to divide it. And uh, Calvin is concerned about the, the Catholic uh, tradition of putting the, what Protestants have called the second commandment under the first. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and uh, thou shalt not make any graven image. That's, that's one commandment. Uh, then to get ten, it's necessary to divide the tenth into... Uh, two commands, both related uh, to coveting. At least that is one traditional way that um, the commands have been understood. But uh, Calvin says in doing it that way, they erase from, from the number, the commandment concerning images, or at least hide it under the first. He wants that to be understood as a, as a definite, separate command in order to emphasize uh, his concern about the use of, of images. God does not will that his lawful worship be profaned by superstitious rites. So Calvin's division uh, is... Uh, is quite different. It's not three plus seven for the two tables, but it's it's four plus six for the two tables. That's a, a small point, but uh, it's interesting uh, nonetheless to uh, see Calvin's concern about that. <clears throat> right, there are a few uh, articles that I've suggested there that uh, would be of help uh, when and if you want to go further uh, into this topic. Uh, we continue with something very similar next time, not Thursday, but uh, next Tuesday when we meet again, uh, when we come to uh, study of the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, both their similarities and their differences. How does Calvin really put together the Testaments? How does he view the, the unity 
uh, of the Bible. We'll see that next time. Thanks for listening to this Worldwide Classroom Lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Find more Christ-centered teaching, plus interviews and devotionals at livingchrist360.com.